0: Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, Agency owner? If you're new here, I've got a free ebook on how to scale your business to multiple six and even seven figures By overcoming your dependency on referrals, doubling your profit per project, and removing yourself as the main bottleneck in your business. All you have to do is DM me the word gift on Facebook at Brent Weaver. That's facebook.com slash Brent Weaver. And I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in business and life. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Hey, what's up podcast listeners, digital agency owners. Welcome to another episode of the digital agency show. I'm your host, Brent Weaver. And today we're hanging out with David C. Baker. He's an author, speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He has written five books, including The Business of Expertise. He's advised over 900 firms, keynoted at conferences in 30 countries. His work has been discussed in dozens of international publications. The New York Times referred to him as the Experts Expert. And he co hosts one of the most listened to podcasts in the creative space with. With the very popular blur ends called Two Bobs, David C Baker, welcome back to the program, man.
1: Thank you, thank you. Oh, I wish my parents had named me better. I wouldn't have had to insist on the C. That's only for SEO, but it sounds very pretentious. So, thank you, but thank you for using <laughs> C. But I wish it was just David. <laughs>
0: well, we will. Uh, we'll. We'll. We'll make sure we include it in our in our show notes as well because we want to make sure that people find you in the right way because the work that you do is is amazing it's clear it's concise you obviously help a ton of agencies you were just uh recently one of our keynotes at the you summit virtual in december of 2021 uh the topic we were talking about there was you know how to position your agency for exit which i think is a is a timely topic whether you're buying an agency or your, or one day you want to sell your agency. I think a lot of people over the last couple of years have thought a lot about their business. Either they want to grow <laughs> yeah. it like crazy, or they want to get the heck out of it. Right? And they're kind of in one one of those camps. I found absolutely, and and you've you've done that a lot. I, I was very surprised when we were chatting to learn how many companies that you've helped sell.
1: Yeah, 159 so far some of them haven't been traditional sales they might be like an aqua hire or a merger of two firms or i i actually include the three or four firms i've helped close as well because it is sort of a big transition but it's part of the work that I really enjoy doing and there aren't as many people there are a lot of people doing what you and I do um, like our consulting and coaching work not as many people doing the m a st- stuff so it's it's been a good fit i've enjoyed it
0: I mean, I think typically what I would think of in the M&A space would be like some kind of business broker that's just a a normal everyday business broker that just, you know, gets plopped agencies every once in a while. But I feel like you're coming at this from a completely different angle.
1: Yeah. And the truth is that it doesn't have to be all that unique. So I don't know what the percentage is, but I would guess that probably 70% of the work I do could easily be done by any qualified, experienced business broker. But then that other 30% comes into play sometimes. So, for instance, and I'm sure this will resonate with your with your audience and with your consulting practice, but it's you know, the, the people running these firms are strange beasts. They're just, you know, they, they love the work a lot more than the typical business owner does. And they're also way more involved in the work. And so the idea of an outsider buying the firm and then that principle not staying on for a long period of time somewhat terrifies them because it's a little harder. Most of us are not running our businesses in a way that make it scalable, or make it possible for us to focus just on the two or three things that nobody else can do at the business. So there's some things that are different about this space. I don't know what this number is for other industries, but in our industry, one in 400 firms will sell. And that is a really pathetic number, right? But before you kind of, you know, jump out the window, it, there are a lot of things you can do to raise that likelihood through positioning and profit and size and service offering. And so it can, it can ratchet up really quickly, but as an industry, we really haven't, we, we just start these businesses to run them. We don't start them to sell them. And so it's a different way of thinking usually to migrate that way in your head.
0: Is that, and I guess my, my first question is like, why, why are agencies so hard uh, to sell? Is it because the owners don't even ever go down that path? Or is it because they're just so
1: involved in everything? It's partly because they are so involved. So they haven't figured out a way to extricate themselves in a way that the buyer would be comfortable. But the other reason, and this is a huge one, is is what, what a buyer would call revenue visibility. But what we would call something like monthly or annual recurring revenue So a lot of our relationships, and this is changing for the better, but a lot of our relationships are very episodic, more project-to-project related. And so a buyer who doesn't understand this business gets scared off pretty quickly. They may still make an approach to buy a business, but they'll tend to mess with the terms so that it just becomes untenable for the seller. So the the principal needs to stay around for X number of years and so on. So I think it's it's partly because of how we work with our clients, partly the size, partly because it never occurs to us that we should do this. Have you, um, I imagine you've come across the book by a friend of mine, John Warlow, called Built to Sell. And that book really had, I think it's it's been at least a decade, maybe longer, but that book really uh, prompted a lot of soul searching in the industry. I think because one of the chapters he used as an example was a firm like the ones listening here today. And so that gave people the idea that, oh, maybe I need to build it not just to make money and to love what I'm doing, but maybe also to sell it. And then the second sort of thought that hit their minds, and this is absolutely true, it's kind of a foundational principle for me, is that even if you don't want to sell it, you ought to run it as if you want to sell it, because every decision you make that makes it more likely that you would sell it is a decision that will make it more enjoyable to run as well. So this is one of those rare occasions where you can have both things come true, even if the other one doesn't.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think in in that book, uh, it's been a while, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's kind of, kind of runs like a general branding agency and kind of, a, it develops it into kind of more of a logo package, like very package has an offer, right. And is able to kind of scale that in a way where it's, it's more of the system uh, than the, uh, that him being like the baker or whatever, right. The technician. Right. Right. A lot of, I mean, I hear this, you know, in and, and, there, there's, there's always this comment of like, you know, I would never sell my business, you know, or something like, like, I feel like a lot of agency owners and entrepreneurs in general, right? Like feel like they'll be judged or something if they, if they think, oh yeah, I'm building this to sell one day. Um, but then of course, if you ask them, you're like, well, what if somebody gives you, you know, $10 million for your
1: business? Like, oh, well, yeah, yeah I guess I would sell Right. You know, it's like, there's always a number. Yeah, right. And what is it about our industry where we focus so much more on our acceptance by our peers than we do by our clients? We we enter all these awards that are all peer driven. They're they're not about the clients, they're all our peers judging what we do. We care about the quality of the work even when we're Overservicing clients doing stuff that they aren't paying for because we don't want a reputation for slacking off. We don't want to sell it because we're worried what people will think about it. It's just sort of crazy. We're just consumed with what our peers think way more than in other industries. And I haven't quite figured that out.
0: Like if I was, if I had like a dry cleaner and it was like, you know, I want to sell this business. Like I wouldn't feel like, I mean, maybe there is that dry cleaner that's like super emotionally wrapped up in the best press shirt hangers. or something, but right, just like.
1: carefully arranged hangers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but they would, you know, I think it, it's easier to look at. It. I mean, it's a good point, David. I mean, I feel like it's it's easier to look at your business. It, it's easier to look at other some other industries as having a more um kind of uh, objective view of like I have a business and I feel like for so many agency owners and maybe it's why they got into it. Right. I mean, I feel like on this show, right, we've had well over a hundred agency owners on this program. And you know, everybody has this like Genesis story of like their first right. website, the first client that paid them money. I mean, they've, I feel like we've got a lot of our own identity, whether your business is a persona based, a per, you know, personal brand based business or not. I do feel like a lot of agency owners have wrapped up their identity in, in the business.
1: That's true. Yeah. And of course, the larger ones that are more well known, that wouldn't necessarily be the case because they've they just would have fallen apart if they hadn't figured out a way to get a the next leadership team below them in place and put processes and and get rid of any client relationship that they have personally. And they're not the creative director. They're not the strategist. What they're doing at this point is thinking about the culture and growth and managing the layer right below them developing their careers and n- nobody got into this field wanting to do those things but the really successful firms discovered that that was an important component of being a leader and some of them embrace that and they're doing really well it's not a i don't think it's a moral or ethical thing in fact if you if you don't like the idea of managing people or all that comes with that, the the risk of a bigger firm, financial risk and so on, then you can have a five or six person firm and that's completely acceptable. You can still make tons of money doing that and have a lot of fun and be closer to the work, but you can't really have both. You can't have a big firm and be too involved in the business for lots of reasons, but particularly if you're hoping to sell it.
0: Cloudways is excited to offer our listeners a $50 hosting credit in addition to their amazing benefits of their agency partner program. For more details, head over to com slash Cloudways or use promo code D-A-S-C-W when signing up. Let's get back to our show. What's the, like, the smallest deals that you see happen that are successful?
1: Mm. Well, uh, maybe the most successful small deal that I know of, and I had nothing to do with this, uh, was Adaptive Path and Capital One would probably be a good example of that, of a pretty small firm with very high profile. And it it really shook up the industry that, in a way, they kind of went over to the enemy side. <laughs> it kind <laughs> of f- fell apart pretty quickly. But uh, in my practice, I've done quite a few Three, four, six-person aqua hires, where it's not quite the same money as an acquisition. And then, in terms of real acquisitions, I would say the smallest I've ever done is about eight people. There are some markers that buyers use, and uh, in this industry, and those are defined in part by how much fee revenue is coming through the firm, and then also how much net. The net's more important. It's it's real hard to, to to get the kind of money a lot of people think they deserve unless they have a million or a million and a half in net, something like that. And in some cases it needs to be even higher. So I tend to focus, uh, in firms that are below for my M and a practice, not my consulting practice, but the M and a practice, I tend to focus with firms that are where their net is, you know, 800 to 2 million, two and a half million, something like that.
0: I mean, I I would imagine to have a broker, and and for you to make it worthwhile for you, I mean, there's just got to be like a minimum kind of
1: stake, right? There is, right? Uh, there, there's not just an equation that you're thinking about. Like, am I getting paid for all my time here? There's also just the specter of not being not not successfully selling the firm, and I just right. don't the, the risk of like because not every deal goes through, right? Right. Oh, yeah, for sure they don't. And and that's why in some cases I'm going to want to look in the firm, do a, a valuation, which is a small number. And and just and then after that, I can say, listen, here's a valuation that's really valuable to you. I don't think I should sell your firm or yes, I think I could sell your firm. I think I can get this for it. I think the terms like the cash at closing and all that could be such and such. One thing you'll find, though, is that Brokers charge very, very differently, and what you're really looking for is not necessarily the best w- the, the best way they charge. You're looking for do they have the sort of contacts that you're looking for. If you if you're selling your firm to another firm in this space, then you need somebody who's working in this space. But if you're not, you really don't. If you're selling it to say a consulting firm or one of the big holding companies or I don't know even to 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 your own client if you have a client concentration you didn't you don't really need a specialized broker that can work well but they're in this field if if you start discovering if you start looking around you'll find that people charge very differently some people base their fee entirely on what they would call a success fee so they're they're taking you on and they're not going to get paid unless they consummate a sale I don't do that. I did that at the beginning, but it gave me too much incentive to try to push clients towards a solution where I would get paid and it was not in their best interest. And it just got really uncomfortable. So I just charge for what it'll take to get what I think it'll take to market the firm. And then I get a bonus on top of that if I sell it. So it's not as attractive to the seller the way I do it it's just the way I do it. I just can't do it where I'm forcing them onto something because it's the only way I'll get paid.
0: Mm, Gotcha. I mean, I think that, you know, it's always interesting when you're in situations, you always have the question, like what people's motives are. And I think if you get a, you know, the idea of a broker is that they're representing you in the transaction and they've got a fiduciary responsibility to the to the, to the, whoever they're representing. Right. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if, if they're ultimately getting paid out of a, out of a percentage or a success fee, you know, they, they, there's going to be that element
1: of them wanting a deal. Right. I, yes, absolutely true. And it, it kind of reminds me that your listeners are probably getting more opportunities than they ever have to explore this. And, and I think with one caveat, I think they should explore it, but I don't think they should hire an advisor to help them. In fact, uh, I did a free webinar on this. And uh, if you want, I can send you the link and we can put it in the notes. But it's the idea that you need to, well, I'll give you the caveat first. So if you're running a firm, it's successful. You weren't really thinking about selling, but this is kind of an intriguing thing that came out of the blue. Should you pursue it? Well, the downside to pursuing it is that you either put off the big initiatives that you otherwise would start, or you just get so distracted right and those are both bad things but but if you can manage those two things then you're you should pursue at least one of these and you should do it on your own without hiring an advisor because you'll learn so much in the process the questions they'll ask and you'll learn what to avoid and what you really love and you'll be so much clearer about this process and then at a certain point if it gets really serious then you probably not always but you probably need a little bit of help so I think it's really good to pursue it. It's interesting. It's fascinating. It gives you this sense of worth and wantedness. And, and a lot of times it leads to, it leads to great things. I don't, I'd be interested to hear from you what you're hearing from your people, but uh, more folks are more introspective now than they ever have been. I, I think I was talking to somebody yesterday who was inquiring about this service and, And at some point in the call, I asked him his age and the way he was talking, the way he was sort of resigned and almost not as engaged as I would have expected. I kind of thought that maybe he'd been running it for 25 years and he was 60 or something. And (laughs) he'd been running it for 12 years and he was 40 something. And I see more and more of that. And what I said to him in the end, I said, oh, you shouldn't hire me. Here's what you should do. And then I said, just feel free to realize that competent, disciplined people nowadays have two or three, maybe even four completely different careers inside them. And it's okay to just to do something with what you've got so you don't lose it all, but then to do something else entirely. And and what we've gone through over the last two years is prompting a lot more people to to look inside and say, Do I really want to do this? And the people who are saying yes, they really want to do it more than ever before. And they're turning out to be great leaders. And then others are saying, oh, this isn't quite as easy as I thought. Or maybe they still love it, but there's something else they want to do.
0: I I mean, running a business in an agency, I mean, it's hard. Yeah. I don't, you know, <laughs> if it That's was easy, guys like it, I'm just yeah. going to tell other
1: people how to do it now more, anymore. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, if it was easy, there wouldn't be a lot of, you know, Brett Weavers and David C. Bakers out there uh, working so hard to help people how to do it better. Right. I mean, it'd just right. be, a, it'd right. be an easy business. So for people to make like big money, I mean, obviously they've got to have law. Lo- I mean, the more net profit they have, which of course, you know, thinking about building your business to sell, which of course is is the whole thesis of the book built to sell. But, you know, if you're thinking about, okay, for me to have a really great successful exit to have 800 or to have a million dollars a year of net revenue, I mean, building a business that does that, at least from a financial perspective, it might be stressful and it might be emotionally draining and it might be hard, but I mean, it's, it's going to be very, uh, it's going to benefit the owner. So whether you ever sell or not, I mean, you would, exactly. you, would you would also get a lot of those benefits. So But you mentioned, um, I mean, if for our listeners to start thinking about, you know, what are some tangible things that I could do now in my business that would, you know, that would make my business more attractive for a potential buyer? I mean, what are some of the things that you see? Like if you, if you like knew that you were going to get a client in five years, but you could somehow magically go back five years before and, and give them like a few pieces of advice... So that when they show up in five years to your doorstep they're like ready to go i mean what are some of those key things that you'd want to see them focused on
1: well first i'd make them pay the whole thing and then i just hope they'd go away and they didn't know to ask for a refund that would be the first <laughs> thing i do no no it's uh um, so there are some real mechanical kinds of things that are surprisingly valuable things like making sure your accounting is up to date and clean and you've got your personal bullshit off of the statements, you know, that, that, that everything that runs through the company that pays for your stuff is reasonable. And, you know, there's, so there's little things like that, but the big things are around obviously profit and you've like, nobody's going to be impressed with less than 20% net profit. And the key asterisk there is that the profit has to be achieved after paying you some reasonable amount. So if you are underpaying yourself and because of that subsidizing the net, well, you know, they'll see through that. So a reasonable net, at least 20%, ideally more than that, after paying yourself. Another, and this is really a big one, and I would guess that your listeners are probably far ahead of average on this one. And that's what a buyer is going to call revenue visibility. So let's say that you're on a phone call with the buyer and the buyer says, hey, talk to me about revenue visibility. And you pull up a spreadsheet and say, yeah, 83% of our clients are on annual recurring revenue arrangements. And We have a 7% churn and our average lifetime value. So it's just being really specific about how you construct your client base. That's a lot easier to do in certain segments of the marketing world, say SEO or SEM or public relations, some kinds of web kind of work. But so that would be another big one. Maintaining a Uh, No client concentration issue. So not having any single client represent more than, you know, my metric is 25%. Theirs is usually tougher than that. Something like 15% having a really a great. So let's say the next question is tell me about your marketing plan. And you don't stammer around, but you say, oh, yeah, here's what we do. We this is what we do to get leads in the top of the funnel. Here's, here are our expectations. We want six new clients that meet this criteria every year. And we found that it takes this many conversations and our two primary marketing efforts are these and, you know, those kind, that kind of a talk. Those are the kinds of things that really set you apart and make it so much easier to sell. Mm. Did I mention positioning? (sighs) No, we haven't gotten into positioning yet. Oh well, I should have. So positioning too, <laughs>
0: <laughs> positioning in f- as far as as having uh you know having a, having a market, having a, a niche, and having some kind of value prop that really resonates and is proven.
1: Yeah, it, either vertical or horizontal, but otherwise, people are the buyers are really most interested in either revenue, which means you've got to have a really really spectacular performing firm, or they're interested in capacity, in which case they're usually not willing to pay a lot of money for that. So what they're looking for in a well-positioned firm is usually some attendant service that fits really well with theirs, or it could be that they, they don't care too much about what you do, but they see that you're connected very highly at on the client side and they want access to those people to upsell them other things and so on. So positioning is just saying, okay, we're not interchangeable with these other 55,000 firms in North America alone. We, there are only 10 firms that do what we do. We're one of them and we're different from the other nine because of all these other things. That's what I mean by positioning.
0: So so a lot of like kind of back to this idea of, of just running a good business right i mean i mean, I mean really yeah. thinking about like how to make the business work i mean even for the agency owner themselves i mean so far i haven't heard anything that's like oh that would be that sounds like admin work i mean having a having clarity around your in your recurring revenue, your churn rate, your lifetime value, having clarity around, you know, your, uh, your client concentration or having clean accounting. I mean, I, but I do see all of this stuff like it happens to us. Cause we, we look at, uh, with our coaching programs, we get, you know, we kind of get led behind the curtain, right? We get to see a lot of right. financials. We got to see it. And I always hear just these crazy things of, you know, I'll, we'll be running into like the profit number and I'll be like, mm-hmm. well, what's your profit? And I'll be like, oh, it's 64%. Well, does that include yeah. your own pay? Well, no, I don't. I don't pay myself because my accountant says blah blah blah, and I'm like, well, okay, yeah. But, Fire uh, your right?
1: accountant then. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and I, I I always tell people like you know like have your accountant like do their thing, but like you still need to like separate your business goals. Like you you need to like you need to have your numbers that you run a healthy business to. And and if your accountant wants to do some ninjutsu to save you like a couple points on taxes, like that's cool. But like at some point, you do yeah. have to understand like. Where is that profit number?
1: Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> I'm just laughing because I hear the same things, and it's uh, it and it's so specific in my mind that I just I actually published a criteria for what you should pay yourself because I'm just tired of having that argument. So, for instance, if you've got five to eight people, you need to be paying yourself 170 thousand regularly, and distributions are always on top of that. And if you're running a firm. Between 9 and 12, it's 225, and then it's 275, and then it's 410, and so on. I, And it, it's, it, it's a little bit – I mean, it's scientific, but it's also rounded off, and it's not super accurate, but at least it gives people some place to start. Because who's going to want to buy a business where there's this crazy profitability, and then halfway through the due diligence process, they realize that you're not on payroll? It's like, well – we're going to have to hire somebody to run this firm, and they're not going to be happy not being on payroll. So, sorry, that's not going to work.
0: I I feel like a lot of five to eight person companies, the owners listening to this, just went like, "I'm not paying myself 170." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which you know, again, they're they're looking at if if you're, and I, I don't think you would say that to somebody to to like freak them out, but I think if you were to rerun your numbers as if you were paying yourself 170 and the business comes out to be 0% profit or maybe even like a negative 10% profit, <laughs> I mean, that, that should be a really strong indicator, right? That something's wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it should be, right. But you've seen this, I'm sure, it's almost like you and I are talking, we're not aware there's an audience here, but you know, the price we will pay to not have a boss is staggering we're willing to work for half of what you would make somewhere else because that's how important it is for us not to have a boss. And we're taking on all this financial responsibility. So when somebody kind of jerks their head and gets really shocked that I would say something like 170 for five to eight, I'm just saying, okay, what would you make if you went went to work for somebody else? And it's almost always more than they're making so i'm saying okay let's go back to why you started this business it's not always true for everybody but most of the time it's a combination of i want to do things differently i want to make more money i want to have control over my destiny destiny and i don't want to work as hard and then five years later you ask yourself the same question I'm working harder. I'm making less money. I've got financial risk. Uh, now my employees are in charge. I'm no longer in charge. It's like they're unionizing. No, it's not quite that bad, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. You,
0: you, you can work, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what do they say that you can, you can work whatever you want. You can, you can choose the, choose the 80 hours a week that you, you work, you can, <laughs> you can work on whatever right. you want. Uh, yeah, you have right. that freedom, right. Um, but you still yeah. got to work 80 hours. Hey, what's up, agency owners? I want to tell you about one of my favorite white-label partners, E2M. They can help with all your website design, web development, SEO, and content needs for your client projects. This includes WordPress, WooCommerce, Shopify, BigCommerce, Webflow, Duda, SiteGlide, custom PHP applications, and much more. Have peace of mind when it comes to your outsourcing needs. Let E2M become an extension of your team so you can grow and scale how you want. Check them out today at e2msolutions.com. That's e the number 2msolutions.com. All right, back to our show. What have you, have you seen an acquisition? I mean, you got, you've got 160 some acquisitions that you've personally participated in. I mean, have you seen uh, an acquisition, an exit for an agency go, go sideways? I mean, have you seen this blow up in somebody's face?
1: Oh yeah, many times, and at very different points along the way, I still remember so vividly. I was at the Nashville airport getting ready to board, and my phone went off, and the the principal called off the deal. It was a 38 person firm in Santa Monica. It was uh, it wasn't a huge selling price. I think it was 4.3 million or something like that, and a million was going to be paid in cash at closing with no strings attached. And then the rest of it would be paid if he stayed for two years and so on. And he said, Hey, don't come. If you haven't boarded, I've changed my mind. I can't do it. I'm just going to close the firm. And I said, you realize like, you could close the you could walk away a day after this and and ethically keep a million dollars right he just couldn't do that and then other things are discovered in due diligence that would be at the other end of the timeline right before we're ready to close after the LOI is in hand other times you discover sort of cultural issues my feeling is that you you really want to avoid that uh and and so that kind of translates into my approach, which I think should be everybody's approach. And that's, we're not afraid of the truth. Okay. So the goal is not to sell your firm. The goal is to sell your firm if this, this is the right buyer. So you You get to the point where you reluctantly admit you're not afraid of the truth, even if the truth is that you shouldn't sell your firm to them. And if then the corollary to that is, okay, part B, if I'm not afraid of the truth, the sooner I find the truth, the better. It's sort of the same way you would think about prospecting. If 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 we're going to be a great fit with this client let's find out if we're not going to be a great fit let's find out and let's find out as soon as possible so we don't waste each other's time so that's part of the whole process is surfacing the important issues that might derail it later but it's kind of rare i don't i don't know what the percentage is i would guess maybe 15 20 fall apart in unexpected ways
0: that's still a you know, I mean, I think for somebody who's sitting on the the five yard line with a million dollars on the other side of it, I mean, that's a, I mean, they obviously had some strong personal reasons to, yeah, he walk had away from that. I mean, that feels like or something. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And so when you say like not afraid of the truth, and just just for our, our listeners, like like because I'll hear people, we bought a couple of small agencies, and just getting you know going through and getting documents from them You know, it was like oh like there was like resistance like oh if you if you see this you're gonna have our trade secrets or something you know or like it's like well we're trying to buy your trade secrets like we gotta see what we're buying kind of thing (laughs) um but you know it's like i think that people think oh well if they find out about this they might not want to buy me buy my business i think it's a very natural fear-based kind of mindset what you're saying (laughs) is is If you're going to do this kind of thing and it's going to be successful, you got to get over that and you got to be willing to either share the truth or find the truth in the process and the
1: sooner the better. Yeah, exactly. But some of that fear is natural because this is the first time they've ever sold a business and so they don't really know what to expect and 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 in some cases there there are principals out there who are very open and transparent even with employees. And then there are others that are a little bit more old school. Now, not as old school as 30 years ago, where employees were not even allowed to see proposals or hourly rates like nobody's doing that anymore. But they're still old school in the sense that they fear somebody is going to screw them by taking their clients or taking their employees or pulling their IP, like you just said. That is just not going to happen. It's like we're not as special as we think we are. It's it's. uh, it's just crazy people uh, and this is one of the first things that you kind of have to do when you have these conversations as principals is realize listen you've built something that's pretty cool but it's not all that special in the sense that you could basically empty the coffers and just tell everybody everything and people are just not even going to notice or care it's just there's nobody out there following me following every word i I speak or everything I publish just trying to copy it like that would that would be driven by me having a much higher view of my abilities than are true it's like just do your stuff be transparent I've if I could wave a magic wand I would require all agencies to publish their financials for the world to see because <laughs> I I want to sort through the bullshit In terms of how, you know, their client, like everybody's worked for Microsoft, right? But half of those people just designed a bar mitzvah invitation. And for somebody who worked at Microsoft, like, I want to know more. I want more transparency, not less. And that's changed as I've gotten a little bit older. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't know if we'll, uh, if we will ever, God, reach it's not that. Happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'd
1: Utopia. like you, I'd like you to take the charge on that. I'd like you to tell <laughs> your members to do that first and then I'll go second. I, I think,
0: I think a good first step would be that most agency owners just get a grip on their financials uh, for them for <laughs> yeah. themselves. And then, and then the second step would be to clean them up in a way that could be presented to another person. And then eventually, and, yeah. and that goes for all business owners, right? I'm not, yeah, I am not. Right. I mean, I think for, for years I struggled with, with the same thing of just getting a clear financial picture of my business. It's not, you know, 12 months in the rear view mirror kind of thing. <laughs> right. Uh, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I pay a, a, a an accounting person who's actually a CPA, a percentage of my revenue just to track everything. Cause I, I want really specific data, right? I don't, you know, for the first five years, I was probably afraid to see it, but not anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, David, I always, I, I I love your insights, man. Your talk at you summit was, was fantastic. The, I got so many great compliments on you summit as a whole. And, uh, and specifically on your, uh, your keynote, and uh, and we appreciate you hanging out with us today. Do you have a few minutes to stick
1: around for our lightning round? I do. All right. What's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, is probably to understand my... Now, by the way, I don't have these questions in my head, so you might be catching me. If you send them to me, I don't remember them. Probably unique ability, uh, figuring out what my unique ability is, and that has transformed my life. I, I was too close to things to see it. So I, it's a process where you ask about 40 people, friends and clients and family, and they don't get to compare notes. They just send it to you directly. And then you see, and then you see how most everybody is saying the same thing. And you get this clarity about what you're good at in life. That was, that was probably it for me.
0: You just asked them that question of what do you think my unique
1: ability is? yeah exactly um it's it's a concept that was created by Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach out of Toronto, and he talks a lot about it. I have something about it in my book as well, and I think I've written an article that's free on a unique ability it's the unique ability exercise.
0: Awesome. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success?
1: Discipline I think i I would. I'd be considered successful in most measures, but I think people misunderstand that. It comes from enough smarts, uh, just a dogged discipline and a whole lot of luck, mainly luck. But I think probably discipline would be the biggest thing for me, just stubborn, stubborn nose discipline.
0: And, and out of curiosity, I, I don't usually do follow-ups on on uh, lightning around, but but how does discipline show up for you? Like, is it is it your your daily habit your routine is it following through on what you say you're going to do i mean is it a is it routine based or is is it something else i think it's
1: mm, i would say if, if we were going to just highlight what's had the most impact on the business it would be writing a blog I, I hate the word blog but writing inside articles every week or two weeks for 25 years and seeing the Seeing how that pays off, that would be a place where discipline would show up. Writing books is very difficult. Uh, the sixth one is done, hasn't been released. That and and when I think about the impact of discipline for high value activities that really help your personal brand, the discipline would be more important than smarts in my mind. Thank God.
0: <laughs>
1: Can you share an internet
0: resource app uh, that you use that you think our listeners would find valuable?
1: I love Savvy Cal and I also love Asana. I run a lot of business on those two things. Uh, I know a lot of people use different tools. I've just found those be really, really useful to me. And what
0: book, besides one of your six, would you recommend and why?
1: Well, I probably am not going to get in trouble if I don't say this, but I really do think the win without pitching manifesto that my podcast partner wrote, is a really remarkable book. And this next, if I can, I'll just give you two. The This one has been around a long time, and it's a little bit embarrassing. The last half of it isn't any good, and the first half is a little bit outdated. But Michael Gerber's book on the E-Myth Revisited, I had him come and keynote a conference I was doing in Mexico. I just think that got me thinking so much clearer about entrepreneurship. That was a really good book.
0: Awesome. Well, we will link out to the E-Myth Revisited and Blair's Win Without Pitching Manifesto, along with your five currently published books in our show notes at com slash podcast. So if you're out on a run or driving around the car and you don't have a pen and paper and you want to make sure you link out to Asana or Savvy Cal or the Unique Ability Exercise blog post from David or those book recommendations, check them out. uguruscom slash podcast. David, how can our audience find out more about you? Is there anything that you have they can check out?
1: Sure. So David is my consulting practice, or they can uh, get the free weekly thing. And then expertise.is is the most recent book.
0: Awesome. We'll also add those to that show notes page. So if you listen to this week of, Go to yougurus.com slash podcast. You'll see David's photo right up at the top. Click on him, and you'll have links out to his website, his books, and all sorts of resources and recommendations from today's show. David, thank you so much for stopping by the program today.
1: You're welcome, Brent. It's really, I, I've enjoyed chatting with you and our association over the years. You have a great reputation. What you're doing for clients is great. I, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
0: Well, that uh, that means a lot. I appreciate that. And that is it for this week, this week's episode of the Digital Agency Show. Stay tuned each and every week for more great content coming to you to help you grow your digital agency so you can achieve freedom in business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And remember, if you want that free ebook on how to scale the multiple six and seven figures, all you got to do is DM me on Facebook, the word gift at Brent Weaver, and I'll send you your guide on how to achieve freedom in your business and life. Until next time, I'm Brent Weaver.